The New Testament reading comes from Mark 10, verse 35 through 11, verse 1. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, Why are you doing, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for preserving this text this morning. Thank you that you preserve the good, the bad, and the ugly to create a story that we could not possibly have made up ourselves because the gospel is literally unbelievable until you believe it. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So normally, uh, when, I, when I do these, there's a part of this that is really kind of a promo for faithful presence in Washington, D.C., but I'm not going to do that this morning. If you want to know about Faithful Presence and what we're doing, uh, there's some prayer cards out in the back. You can grab those. You can send me an email. You can chat me up. But this really, this message is really about blessing and trying to encourage you. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to teach you something that I learned almost 30 years ago in sales. Okay, so at the end of this, you, it's possible 
that you may become extremely skilled salespeople. But hopefully, you will take those skills and use them to become better disciples, more equipped to kind of discern how the Lord can work with you. So I'm going to start by asking this question. What is one thing that if you had an opportunity to ask for it, that you would ask for because it would really substantially improve your life? Just think for a second. doesn't matter what, what age you are. This isn't an adult-only question. Kids, you are welcome to participate. What is the one thing that if you had an opportunity to ask for it and you knew it was going to be given to you, what is the thing that you would ask for that would improve your life the most? So you're, you're thinking. As you're thinking... I want you to maybe consider this. How do you even think about that? How do you go about evaluating what is the thing that should rise to the top of what you're going to ask for? And maybe this will help you consider this. What would make you whole? What thing that you could ask for would make you more whole? And my answer has certainly changed over the years. So when I was in high school, uh, I maybe was, you know, the thing that would make me whole would be being popular, being included, being invited in parties, and then it changed to, I would like to have a 1972 cherry red Carmen Ghia. Um, that hasn't really gone away. It's just not at the top of the list anymore. Um, then it changed to having a wife and having a happy marriage, and then it was having four healthy children, and then it became being successful in business, and then it became planting a church. And so I ask, what is yours? Like right now in this snapshot, and maybe, maybe as, as this sermon goes on, you'll think maybe through kind of the progression of maybe how that has changed in your life. Maybe where you are right now, you're a student in school, and so for you, you know, making academic progress, making get it, getting academic recognition is the thing that would make you whole, that summa cum laude, that ranking in your, in your class, that acknowledgement among peers, the getting that paper published, getting a, a good posting. Maybe it would be vocationally. Uh, being recognized by your peers as somebody to kind of go to. Maybe it's having a, a happy marriage, healthy children. It could be any number of things. And, and all of those things, there, there's parts of them that are absolutely right and good and true. But now it's time to teach you how to sell things. Okay? So when I was in sales, when I first started in sales, uh, my sales manager, Scott Tampke, uh, I sold... I, I, I responded to an ad in the paper to answer the phones for a sales company selling pipe valves and fittings, and I had no idea what those were. So I'm like, oh, you know, I, I interviewed for the job, I ended up getting the job, I answered the phone all day long, I took orders, I wrote them down, and eventually my sales manager came to me and he said, I think you should go into outside sales. And I said, that is never, ever, ever going to happen, which is the first of a long litany of things I have sworn I would never do that the Lord is like, yeah, that's so funny that you think you're never going to do that. So when I 
finally moved into outside sales, I found that my sales technique was I would just offer to always sell our product for less than the other person was selling it, thinking that that would get me business. And my sales manager said, no, 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 that's not the way to do it. And he had me read this book. It's called Spin Selling. Great book written by Neil Rackham, who was a sales professional for IBM. And here's all you need to know about spin selling. Situation, problem, implication, need fulfillment. Identify the situation that your customer has. Try to identify some problem that they have. And then the key is not really identifying the problem, but really in appreciating the implication that that problem is creating in what they're doing. And if you can do that, then solving that problem, fulfilling their need, becomes very easy because they recognize that the implication is high. So, for instance, if I'm a window salesman and I'm walking down the street and I see, oh, look, here's a house with a cracked window in the attic. And I knock on the door and I say, hey, for $1,000, I'll replace that cracked window in the attic. Person's like, yeah, I mean, I recognize it's a problem, but that's been cracked for 10 years and it's pretty insulated, not really interested. But if it's January 4th in Iowa and your plate glass window is smashed and missing, right, that is also a problem. And if I knock on your door and say, hey, I'm happy to replace your plate glass window right now for $5,000, suddenly you're like, oh, that, I really need that. Because even though there are similar problems, the implication of one is far greater. So again, I ask you, if Jesus were here right now, and were to ask you, what do you want me to do for you? What is the need that you would ask him to fulfill? So to get to that, you have to think to yourself, what is my situation? You need to identify a problem. You need to appreciate an implication. And finally, you have to desire a need fulfillment. So this morning... We're going to look at five. This is a five-point sermon. And because I'm visiting, I can do that. I can do a five-point sermon. If you're, you know, if you pay attention, it'll stay five. If you don't, we'll go to six and seven. Okay? So the first one I want to look at is James and John. Okay? So look in your text if you have it, James and John. Let me kind of set up the situation for you. James and John... Have, what's just happened is they have watched Jesus interact with the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he has a need. He wants to know, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to dwell with you forever? And Jesus says, you know, it's pretty simple. If you know your Bible, you know that you just need to obey everything I've commanded. And this answer is phenomenal. Yes, excellent that you would say that because I've done it. This is wonderful for me. I'm a winner. I have done everything you have commanded. So Jesus says, wow, that's, that's fantastic. One more thing, though. Uh, if you would just take everything you have and give it to the poor, that'd be, that's probably the one other thing you could do. And you know the story, the man goes away sad. He goes away sad because, one, he doesn't want to give everything to the poor. 
And two, he realizes that one of the commandments is to not have any idols before me. And he has just been exposed that the idol that he has is all of his wealth and he doesn't want to give it to the poor. And so away he goes. This is the situation that James and John find themselves in. They have been in the inner circle of Jesus for three years. Prior to this, they were fishermen, just kind of hanging out. And one day Jesus walks by and says, hey, follow me. And it says immediately they left their boat, their father, and their staff. they just gone. And for them, it has been three years of wow. I mean, think about what they've seen. They've seen Peter trying to walk on the water. They've seen 5,000 fed with very little bread. They've seen 4,000 fed with very little bread. They've seen Lazarus raised from the dead. They've seen storms completely stopped in mid-storm. They've seen healing after healing after healing. They've seen Jesus rebuke the Pharisees in ways that they could only imagine doing. And they've just seen this encounter, and they begin thinking to themselves, hmm, okay. But also right before this, something else has happened. Jesus has just told them, here's the thing. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I am going to die, and I am going to be handed over, and I am going to be tortured, and I am going to be humiliated, and I am going to die. That's what they know. So they've had this, what they've been promised, basically, is that there is going to be a leadership shakeup of epic proportions in their little mission that they've had going on. And so James and John, they're doing the math, Seems like time is running short. We got to get in on this deal. And so they roll up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, hey, dude, do for us whatever we ask. Now just think about that for a second. Just think about that ask right there. Jesus, son of God, give me whatever I want. Right there you can kind of see that there's a problem, can't you? And so Jesus says what Jesus says, oh, okay, what do you want me to do for you? So they're like, well, we have a problem. Uh, there's going to be chaos here in a little bit, and we're insecure about what our position's going to be, and so we think that you should fix that for us, and, you know, if at the outcome of that we could be at your right and left hand, that'd be awesome. That would fix our problem. What is the implication of this problem? Confusion, possibly James and John, you know, not having the authority and power that they had. Maybe they would end up being insignificant and this whole thing would just kind of fizzle out and they would have wasted three and a half years of their lives. So when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Because they've gone through this little exercise they've come up with we need power we need people to serve us we need to be in a position of rule and authority 
So here what you need to see is that these first three steps are critically important. Because if you blow this, you're going to end up with the wrong answer to the question. Because they have completely missed it. And so Jesus says to them, Jesus said to them, uh, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup? And here he's talking about the cup of wrath. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism of which I am going to be baptized? And they said to him, you got to love this because they're sticking with the plan. We are able. (laughs) Okay, okay. Jesus said to them, "Uh, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right and left hand is not for me to grant, but it is is for those for whom it has been prepared. And here he's talking about the two thieves that are going to sit at his right and left as he's agonizingly being executed. And one is mocking him and the other is saying, please remember me today in paradise. This is what he's talking about. They have no idea what they're saying. They are completely delusional about what their problem is. And then notice this. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, question, are they indignant because they can't believe that James and John would have missed this so badly? Or were they indignant because James and John got there first? How dare you ask to be at the right and left hand? Because we were totally going to ask him that when you guys were going over here. And I understand we all have to be together on this because Peter's been working Jesus over for three years. He's been constantly trying to impress Jesus. And Jesus even said, on you, I'm going to build my church. So I understand we got to try to figure out some way to get something for us. But you guys, you can't do that. What about us? See, here's what's happened. They've blown it. They've misunderstood the situation, they've misunderstood the problem, and they have completely misunderstood the implication. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You want to know how to be great, James and John? Serve. Serve. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the problem James and John have they can't see, they are blind. They have completely missed their problem. See, their real problem is they are are racked with envy, jealousy, pride, and greed. And so when they ask, when Jesus asks them, what do you want me to do for you? What they're asking for is that you would satisfy my envy, my greed, my jealousy, in my pride by elevating me in front of everybody so they can serve me. And Jesus exposes them just like this. 
Now, before we judge them, okay, we just need to recognize that we probably have a lot in common with James and John. Most of us are upper middle class folks with a fair amount of opportunities for advancement. We're here in a university town. Kind of the world is, many options are available to us. And to get ahead, we kind of understand what needs to happen. Most of us have a plan for flourishing. And so oftentimes when we go to Jesus, it is about things like give me favor in the sight of my peers, in the sight of my employer, give me academic advancement, I'm praying that my children, you know, that things will go well with them. All of those things are good. Unless, of course, you want things to go well for your children so that other people will think well of you and will admire you because you're living vicariously through your children and using them to bring praise and honor and fill you up and make you feel complete and whole, or that that extra degree makes you feel complete and whole, or the job recognition makes you feel complete and whole. And that's where the problem is. Because then it's about sin and implications of the fall and not about actual wholeness. So what should James and John have asked for? Father, you're, you know, Jesus, you're, you're going to go and die, and uh, this, things are going to be pretty bad, and we realize this is a wreck, and we're a wreck, and we need help and perseverance because we have no idea what's coming next, and we are so self-centered. Could you please help us to endure what's coming and to care for those around us and to want to serve those around us? Number two, Bartimaeus. So it should not be lost on you that the very next thing that happens is that the two people who just asked to rule so that other people could serve them, the next thing that happens is that they encounter a man who needs to be served. They encounter Bartimaeus. Now, let's talk about Bartimaeus's situation. He's living outside of Jericho. It's probably a town that he grew up in. Everybody knows him. He's a regular. People pass him by every day. He's sitting in his normal spot. It's probably a good spot. And we have a sense of, of a Bartimaeus here in Iowa City. We have them in Washington, D.C., where you see the people begging with the signs that say, homeless, anything will help. And we try to maybe ignore them or pretend like, you know, they're not there. And even down on the ped ball, you know, there's people who have normal spots where they use to, to do what they do. And that's their situation. And it's a little easier to see what the problem is, right? Because Bartimaeus is a blind beggar in the first century. There's no shelter house. There's no star program for him. There's no public services available. There's no free transportation cards. There's no free cell phones. There's nothing for them other than begging every day. Plus, he's blind. Job opportunities, training, 
for blind people in the first century, also non-existent. He's peeking out vocationally right now. He's a beggar. That's his problem. And what's the implication of that? A life of insignificance, a life of depression, a life of constantly worrying if he's going to get enough money, and a life of trying to be noticed by people like James and John and Peter who are asking to be in positions of authority. After Jesus has just spent three years trying to teach them to care about Bartimaeus. And you see what happens. The problem is that as the people are coming by, right, Bartimaeus hears it. And he begins to hear, he's aware, he's heard the stories about Jesus, that Jesus is coming. And so he begins to yell out, Jesus, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And the group, it says the group, the, the people who were following Jesus, right? And this is Mark's code for James and John and Peter said, after their nice little lesson, hey, you, shut up. He's not interested in talking to you. We just had this lesson, and this is its application. Shut up. He's not interested in serving you and making you whole. And what does Jesus say? Bring him to me. And they bring him, and they say, hey, guess what? Jesus wants to talk to you. I imagine Bartimaeus going, I think I just heard you telling me to shut up. Right? And so they bring him, and Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, what you have to see here is that this is the exact same question that he just asked James and John. In Greek, it is point for point, letter for letter, exactly the same. And there's a reason for that because you're supposed to get it. All of Mark 10 through Mark 11 is this one big narrative about what do you want him to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, well, you know, there's a certain amount of simplicity in suffering and poverty. My life is not complicated like James and John's. Um, I'm a blind beggar, so if I could see, that would help things out a ton. And at this point, I imagine that Jesus just looks over at James and John. Like, that answer was the answer I was looking for from you. Because you guys need to see. See, Bartimaeus, he can already see. He sees what his actual problem is, and that is that he actually needs Jesus to help make him whole. But Jesus' answer is interesting. He says, go your way, rise and walk, go your way. Your faith has saved you. That's what it says in the Greek. Your faith has saved you. Wait, what? I thought he asked to get his sight back, and Jesus responded by saying, go your way, your faith has saved you. To unpack this, you have to go to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 says, 
And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered so that there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came to him, bringing a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, listen here, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Wait a second, does Jesus not understand what this guy's problem is? He's, he's blind. The implication is a, is a lifetime of, 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 of or I'm sorry, he's a paralytic. It's a, it's a lifetime of begging. What is Jesus doing? He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their heart, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, said, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier for me to say to the paralytic, rise, your sins are forgiven, or, or I'm sorry, your sins are forgiven, or rise and take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he picked up his bed and he went out before them so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. If you lay this miracle over the miracle in Mark chapter 10, it has a lot of similarities. There is a person whose problem appears to be that they are physically disabled and their wholeness is going to be being made physically well. And Jesus, in response to this, actually seems to say that your faith has saved you and then he tells him, rise and walk and go on your way. Because what Jesus recognizes is that for all of us, the true problem that we have is our sin and the impact of the fall on our lives. Whether that means it's our own sin or the sin of others that has been inflicted upon us, the thing that we need that will make us whole is Jesus interacting in that. And so he says, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go your way. Because Bartimaeus saw what James and John did not, which is what it would really mean for him to be whole. So back to me, just for a quick moment. In 2008, I'm here, I'm planting a church. I've never planted a church before. I'm in my own hometown. That's my situation. I've got four kids. Here was my problem. I was not successful. Church was not growing at the speed that it needed to grow. It really needed to be on a trajectory to hit two to 300 people. Because when I graduated from Covenant Seminary and I walked across the stage, one of the professors there shook my hand and he said these words to me, Michael, we're all expecting great things from you. And I went back to my seat and I watched his mouth the entire rest of the graduation service to see if he was repeating himself, and he wasn't. And so I said, of course you are, because I'm totally that guy. I can totally do that for you. I'm going to make you so proud of me. They're going to write books about my church planting prowess. 
And had Jesus come to me at that time and said, what do you want me to do for you? I would have said, make this church be amazingly huge. And Jesus would have said, I can't believe you don't understand. I asked you what you want me to do for you. What do you want me to do to make you whole? And I think what you just told me is that you need one ancient hope to make you whole. And it doesn't work that way. That is brokenness. Why don't we work on that? And after I moved on from One Ancient Hope and went to Chicago and was in Washington, D.C., that's exactly what the Lord worked on with me. Helping me become emotionally, spiritually, relationally healthy enough to realize that the sin that I was committing was thinking that what I really wanted was other people to say to me, what do you want us to do for you? And now I'm in a situation where I don't need anybody to do anything for me because I don't have a church. I'm just serving people. And this brings us finally to the triumphal entry. Imagine their situation. It's, it's Passover. They're in Jerusalem. They're celebrating, and Jesus is coming into the city, and so they are waving their palms, and they are excited, and this seems to be a great situation, and so you have to ask, what is their problem? What problem do these people have? You might say, well, they're occupied by Rome. They don't have the freedom they wanted to have. They don't have the free Israel as a, as a nation state with God ruling over it, and that's their problem, and the implication is that they are lonely and confused and exhausted, but again, they'd be missing the point. They are in Jerusalem for Passover. They are there to celebrate and acknowledge the fact that they need forgiveness of sins. They need a lamb to be provided for them to make atonement for their sins, hopefully once and for all. And so as they're celebrating Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, what are they expecting is going to happen? I think they're expecting that their assumed problem and assumed implications are going to be resolved, but not their real problem and their real implications that sin has impacted their lives, that they are separated from God, and that wholeness is walking in front of them, offering for them to be whole, to be united again to God through Him, to have their sins forgiven once and for all, and instead they are celebrating what they believe is some kind of potential political victory because they have missed what's right in front of them. And all signs are pointing to it. If they would just look. He's on a donkey, kids. Listen, he had two options available to him. A giant war horse or a donkey. So if people were watching, they would be, well, this doesn't fit at all. Doesn't he know he's supposed to have a war horse? Why is he on a donkey? Hmm, this reminds me of a scripture in Zechariah 9. I, maybe I should look that up. Yeah, maybe you should. That would help your response right now. And so I ask you this question again. What is your situation? What is your problem? What is the implication of that problem 
This is a question that I interact with regularly in Washington, D.C. with people who run what's called the drone phone. I lead a study at a government agency um, near McLean, Virginia, where one of the people that I minister to regularly uh, on his desk is, is the drone phone he refers to it as. And after he's looked at his data and he's analyzed the data that he has to analyze, he picks up the phone and it rings somebody at the State Department and they have a discussion about the data that he's just analyzed, and then they get somebody else on the phone over at the Defense Department. It's the Pentagon. And that usually results in him saying, yes, put the drone in the air. And that drone sometimes takes pictures. And sometimes it does not take pictures. Sometimes it slams into a building and kills people because that's his job. And sometimes, on the evening news, the world finds out what he knew in the middle of his day was at that exact moment, three kids were playing soccer behind the building, and the drone phone resulted in them dying as well. Or they're in a toxic office and they're trying to figure out how to get ahead. Or they're struggling with issues of infertility or they're having to deal with the trauma of one day I went to work and people broke in all the doors and threatened to kill me and defecated in my desk and told me that they loved Jesus. And now imagine that Jesus walks up to them and says, what do you want me to do for you? So my job daily is, is to help them to come to this kind of conclusion. All of the things that you're talking to Jesus about are all valid. We all want healthy children. We all want our children to follow the Lord. We all want to flourish in our vocations. These things are good, but they can't be the ultimate. When the ultimate is that it's about you and, and the way people perceive you, then that's a problem. That's not what Jesus comes to make you whole. Jesus comes to make you whole so that those things are not necessary to make you whole. That what is necessary to make you whole is his love and forgiveness and his welcome. Here's the great news. Jesus has already done for you the thing you need the most. So any answer that you give has already been answered in Christ. What do you need me to do for you? I need you to reconcile me to God, the Father, for whom I am distant because of my sin. Already done. Already done. Forever. Was there anything else? Mm, yeah, but not as urgent. Here's the thing I want you to know as I leave. My encouragement to you would be to do two things. When you, when you go to the Lord and to ask him, and he begs you to ask him, he tells you, ask me what you need. Tell me what you need. Come to me. You have because you don't ask. And unfortunately, he's not talking about a cherry red 1973 Carmen Ghia, because I've asked, he's not answered. But the wholeness he has. And so continue to ask Jesus to make you whole. Here's the thing I really want you to hear. I was so wrong 
about this church. I was so wrong. This church is amazing. At 100 people, 80 people, this church is awesome because this church is an invitation to people to come and join us and let us walk the walk of your wholeness with you. Because as someone once said to me, no one can do your walking for you, but you do not have to walk alone. And as we all walk together towards wholeness, this church is a wonderful example of how God does that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to bring your word this morning. Lord, we do thank you for being so good, so kind, so gracious to us. We thank you that you have indeed taken care of the thing that is most most needed to make us whole, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. Through Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.